0: We find ourselves this morning back in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. So turn there with me as I read the opening 11 verses, Philippians chapter 3, with our focus this morning coming on verses 4 through 7. So Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul writes, "'Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord.'" To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh." If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Faith is a very popular attitude these days. It wasn't long ago that the intellectual elite in our society regarded believing in something for which there was not tangible empirical evidence as the height of folly. But these days it seems that having faith or being a person of faith is no longer thought of as a bad thing at all in most circles. It's actually more common to hear someone praising someone else for their faith or speaking highly and even proudly of their own faith in their own personal belief system. In fact, the concept of Having faith is regarded so highly today that people seem not to care what you believe in as long as you believe in something. It doesn't matter where your faith is placed, it just matters that you have faith. Have you encountered that attitude as you've lived and worked and interacted with the people in this world, friends in your non Christian circles? My wife told me about a conversation she had with another nurse at the hospital where she works. She had an opportunity to share the gospel with this lady and explain to her what the Bible says about salvation. And at the end of the conversation, this woman thanked Jenna for explaining the gospel to her and said, You know, I really respect you for having faith, for believing in something strongly. And then this woman referred to another one of their co workers, another nurse at the hospital whom she knew to be an atheist, and said, Sally, call her Sally over there, she doesn't believe in anything. And I just really find that there's no merit in that at all. But I respect you for your strong faith. You see, this woman wasn't any more persuaded of the truths of the gospel that that Jana spoke to her. She had no intention of making any sort of new judgment upon the, the value or the veracity of what Jana was telling her. And that's the common attitude. It doesn't matter at all what I believe. It just matters that I believe in something, anything really. The common conception of faith in our culture has, has become little more than positive thinking. You know, just have faith that things will be better for you. This is grounded upon absolutely nothing in reality. The result of such a faith is not any actual benefit to the one who has that faith. It just pacifies them. It Kind of appeases them with this sort of wish upon a star mentality that shields them from ever having to consider seriously the truth and the consequences of living according to falsehood. And it's into this society and culture that is so massively confused about the nature and the virtue of faith that we as Christians are sent to proclaim that true salvation from sin and from punishment comes only as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're faithful to evangelize, we speak to our friends and family about the gospel, and we urge people to believe in Jesus. But given our culture's pluralistic, self-focused, intellectually baseless understanding of faith, what do they hear when we present faith in Christ as the condition for salvation? Do we even know ourselves? What do we mean when we tell someone to believe in Jesus? What do we mean when we say that we believe in Jesus? Are we saying that we believe in Jesus like we, some people believe in the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny? Are we just asking people to believe that a Jewish man named Jesus existed 2,000 years ago and that he's not some sort of made-up character like Santa Claus, just believed that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth? Do we mean that Christians believe certain facts about Jesus are true? That He was both God and man, that He lived a perfect life of righteousness and never sinned, that He died on a Roman cross, He was buried, and three days later He rose from the grave? Well, certainly those things are part of what we're asking people to believe. True saving faith cannot exist apart from believing in the facts of Jesus' deity and humanity, His birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection. But what we're really after in preaching the gospel to unbelievers, what it really means for us to, to believe in Jesus, most foundationally means that we trust in him for our righteousness before God. It means that we understand that the standard for fellowship and relationship with the holy God who has created us is absolute 100% moral perfection. Perfection. And in the light of that standard of holiness, it means realizing and recognizing that every inherited privilege and every achieved accomplishment in our lives is worthless to meet that standard. No matter how good we may think we are, we don't have what it takes to reach perfection. And even if we could reach perfection from this point on, we still could never do anything about the falling short of perfection from where we've been already. So, believing Jesus also means that we believe not only that the requirement is perfect righteousness and believing that we have no ability to meet that requirement, it also means believing that Jesus does have what it takes, that He is perfectly righteous to save us. And then it means that we rely on Him for our access and acceptance with God. We depend on Him and His righteousness that He accomplished to admit us into the presence of the God of all holiness. See, this is what the gospel is really about. This is what you're asking your friends and your family to believe when you're sharing the gospel with them. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be moving beyond a believing that and arriving at a believing in. Instead of trusting ourselves, And trusting in our privileges and our accomplishments and our achievements, we abandon all confidence in ourselves and we trust Jesus for righteousness. We rely on Him for access to God. We depend on Him like I depend on this stage to hold me up for the provision of everything that's required for entrance into the presence of absolute holiness. We rely, we depend on, we trust in Jesus. And it's that very topic, the nature of saving faith and the marks of a true Christian, that Paul takes up in Philippians chapter 3. He begins this chapter by issuing to the church at Philippi what I've called a gospel-driven warning, a gospel-driven warning against the damning error of the Judaizers. And you remember from our times previous that the Judaizers according to Acts chapter 15 verse 1 were professing Christians who were teaching that in order for Gentiles to be saved and to be counted righteous before God they needed to believe in Jesus but they also needed to be circumcised and needed to observe the ceremonies of the law of Moses. And Paul recognizes this teaching, that, that righteousness is to be found anywhere else but in the sufficient work of Christ alone. To be, he recognizes it to be so severe that he warns the Philippians to beware of the dogs, to beware of the evil workers. And to beware of the mutilators of the flesh and the mutilators of the souls of men who undermine the grace of the gospel by requiring that human righteousness be added to Christ's work. And since the nature of the Judaizers' false doctrine is to distort what it means to be a true child of God, in verse 3 Paul outlines the nature of a true Christian. He says in verse 3 that the true circumcision, which is to say those people who are united to Yahweh by covenant, those people who have received the circumcision of the heart by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the true people of God are those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So you see, when it comes to to the ground, or to the basis of our acceptance before God, the true child of God puts no confidence in any of His own righteousness, no confidence in the flesh, whether that be the identifying mark of circumcision, the religious ceremonial worship of God's chosen people Israel, or even just His own goodness and moral uprightness. And so it's at that point where he's defining the true Christian, he says, worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ, no confidence in the flesh. It's at that point that he anticipates an objection, a response from the Judaizers. The Judaizers would have heard Paul downplaying circumcision, the ceremonial law and confidence in the flesh, and they would have said to the Philippians, well, of course you Philippians don't understand the value of Mosaic ceremonial worship. I mean, after all, you're only Gentiles, but take it from us. And that Paul, sure he puts no confidence in the flesh, and sure he decries all the privileges of the covenant people of Israel. He's just jealous because he's never had them and he can't ever attain to them. He's just another Christian like you. And Paul says, oh really? You want to play that game, do you? Listen, the true child of God puts no confidence in the flesh, but look at verse four. I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So he's saying, if you want to play that game where we stack up our fleshly credentials, I'll go ahead and beat you on your own turf. If anyone's religious resume could serve as a ground of confidence before God, mine is at the top of the list. Now, it's important to recognize what Paul is not saying there. Paul is not by any means saying that these fleshly advantages and attainments actually do achieve any merit before God. He's not pridefully boasting in his own self-righteousness to demonstrate his superiority, kind of like the Judaizers would have done. He's doing this for the sake of argument. He's saying, if indeed it were the case that a privileged pedigree and an orthodox upbringing and religious achievements actually did have any saving value... I'd have much more of a ground for confidence than these Judaizers would. And this isn't the first time that the Apostle Paul uses his enemy's own weapons against them. The false apostles who were troubling the church in Corinth made it a practice to boast in themselves and to seek to discredit Paul. And so, as Paul writes the letters to the Corinthians, especially the second letter, He says to them, in effect, listen, Corinthians, if you are being drawn away from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ, from this gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, because you're attracted to the attainments of these false apostles, let me assure you that I've got far more grounds to boast. If that's what you're after, you've got it here. You don't need to deviate from me and from the gospel I've preached to find that. But he tells them that he's only, going, he's only boasting that way to beat these false apostles at their own game. In 2 Corinthians eleven seventeen, he says, what I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would. So he's acknowledging, this isn't how Jesus would have me do this. What I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. And so Paul is doing the same thing here in Philippians 3. For the sake of argument, he temporarily adopts the Judaizers' practice of putting confidence in the flesh to demonstrate that his doctrine comes from Christ and not from sour grapes, not because he never knew what the Judaizers knew, not because he was jealous of their privileges. He had enjoyed them all. And also to demonstrate that with regard to self-righteousness, he had been there and he had done that, and he found it all absolutely worthless when it came to meriting acceptance before God. And so in verses 5 and 6, Paul enumerates seven spiritual or religious advantages that he possessed apart from Christ in which, according to the religion of the Judaizers, he could boast. Seven spiritual or religious advantages, and they, they span the gamut of fleshly credentials, The first four are inherited advantages that Paul would have attained simply by birth and by upbringing. And then the final three are personal achievements that Paul would have earned by his own fastidious devotion. But as we look into these things this morning, it's absolutely essential that we don't view this whole thing as just a lesson in Christian history. Just uh, as if Paul's spiritual biography was unique to him but had no bearing for us and for our own lives. As we've said before, if the, if the Judaizing spirit of self-righteousness had died with those men in the first century, we might be able to view this text merely as a history lesson. But it's the natural disposition of every one of our sinful human hearts put confidence in the flesh, to trust in, to rely upon, and depend upon, not the righteousness of Christ alone, but our own good works and accomplishments, even if just in part. And if we have ears to hear this morning, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit is going to teach us about what Pastor John has called seven religious credits that don't impress God. Seven fleshly grounds of confidence that have absolutely no value when we make them the basis upon which we stand before a holy God. And I think you'll be interested to see how modern and contemporary those are. Let's look at the first advantage. We see it at the beginning of verse 5. Paul says, I was circumcised the eighth day. Circumcised The eighth day. Literally, the Greek text says, with respect to circumcision, an eighth dayer. An eighth dayer. See, at the very beginning here, Paul strikes right at the heart of the Judaizers' theology. The Judaizers' chief contention was that Gentile believers must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And as we've said in our messages in the opening verses of Philippians 3, Circumcision was the sign and seal of the Abrahamic covenant. It was the most foundational and fundamental mark of identity for the people of God. To be united to God through His people Israel, through being a descendant of Abraham, was to be circumcised. And to be circumcised was to be identified as one of the people of God. But uh, circumcision, of course, was administered under different circumstances by Paul's day a Gentile convert to Judaism would have been circumcised at whatever moment he had joined the covenant community. It wouldn't have mattered if he was 20 years old or 40 years old or 60 years old. Every male convert to Judaism would have undergone the surgery of circumcision when he became a proselyte. Besides converts, though, there were the Ishmaelites who received circumcision when they were 13 years old, since according to Genesis 17, 25, Ishmael was 13 when Abraham circumcised him. But according to the law of God, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, every child of the covenant was to be circumcised when he was eight days old. This was the strict requirement of God's law upon all those who were native Israelites. And so Paul is saying, listen, I'm no proselyte, Who received circumcision as an adult? And I'm no Ishmaelite who received circumcision at 13. No, with respect to circumcision, I'm an eighth dayer, in strict adherence to the law of Moses. And I can imagine Paul saying this to the Judaizers and looking out among them and seeing that some, if not most, in that crowd were proselytes to Judaism. And so they wouldn't have been circumcised on the eighth day. And more than that, the Judaizers were trying to get the Gentile Christians in Philippi to submit to circumcision according to the law of Moses. But those Gentiles could never attain to that standard that the law required for all the children of the covenant. No matter when they would be circumcised, it would have obviously been after the eighth day. It would be, it would be a second-rate circumcision in comparison to Paul's. And so Paul looks at them all in the eye and he says, with respect to circumcision, I'm an eighth-dayer. I've been at the very top of this ritualistic observance and I tell you from experience that it is absolutely worthless for your salvation. You want fleshly confidence? I've got it and it doesn't work. And through this personal testimony, Paul is teaching us that salvation does not come through the practice of rituals and rites and ceremonies and even sacraments Salvation is not grounded at all upon participation in a Roman Catholic Mass. Salvation is not grounded at all upon praying the rosary or the Our Father or the Hail Mary. Salvation is not grounded at all upon signing the cross or lighting a candle or going to confession. Salvation is not grounded at all upon our baptism, whether our infant baptism or our adult baptism, And salvation is not grounded at all upon our participation in the Lord's Supper. No manner of participation in religious rituals and ceremonies, whether they're Christian, Jewish, Eastern, doesn't matter. None of that contributes to our righteousness before God. All such righteousness, Paul will say in verse 8, is nothing more than garbage. It's rubbish. Secondly, In addition to being an eighth-dayer with with respect to circumcision, Paul says that he was of the nation of Israel, of the nation of Israel. The word nation there refers to ethnicity. It refers to ancestral stock. He's saying, while these Judaizers try to get you Philippians to join yourselves to the people of Israel by conversion, I want you to know that I am an Israelite by birth. And besides showing up the Judaizers who might have been proselytes themselves, many Jews living in Palestine in that day couldn't trace their lineage back to Jacob and the patriarchs. Through intermarriage with many of the neighboring peoples, many in Paul's day were of mixed stock, so to speak. You see, Paul was a descendant of Abraham, like many others, because, you know, even the Ishmaelites could rightfully claim to be sons of Abraham. Paul, though, was a son of Isaac, right? The child of the promise. But then even the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, could claim to be sons of Isaac. But not only was Paul a son of Abraham, and not only was he a son of Isaac, he was also a son of Jacob, a son of Israel himself. And of course, it was the Israelites, not the Ishmaelites and not the Edomites, who were the special covenant people of God. It was the Israelites uh, in Romans 9, that uh, tells us, To whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the covenant promises? And so Paul says, Listen, you can't alter your bloodlines, all right? And mine are pure. I am of the stock of Israel. I am of the true, favored covenant people of God. And you know what? It doesn't mean a thing in regards to salvation. And here Paul teaches us that salvation doesn't depend on any sort of nobility that passes through birth. You know, it's unlikely in our day for anyone to suppose that their particular ethnicity gives them pride of place with respect to salvation. We know that to be absolute foolishness. But maybe others of you are deceived into thinking that other sorts of religious virtues are inherited by birth. You may say, listen, I was born and raised in a Christian home. My parents were believers. Their parents were believers. I come from generations of faithful Christians. Well, can I tell you that that is absolutely wonderful? You know, praise God, give praise and thanks to God for the blessings of godly influences and the natural protection from the evils and the sinful desires of this world. But my friend, the moment that you believe that growing up in a Christian household or being the child of believers provides any basis For your acceptance with God, you've believed in damnable error. Not only was Paul circumcised on the eighth day, not only was he of the nation of Israel, he was, number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, it was uncommon, even for the Jews in Paul's day, to be able to trace their descent back up to Jacob, let alone through the tribal descent of Jacob's sons. See, intermarriage during the years of the exile had long blurred the tribal lines. Of those Judaizers who weren't proselytes, and again, probably many of them were, but those who were true Israelites, it's very likely that a great many of them had no hope of tracing their tribal descent. But Paul was able to trace his family's descent straight back to Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin was highly regarded in Israel for many reasons. You may remember that Jacob had two favored sons from his favored wife, Rachel. That was Joseph and Benjamin. And Benjamin was also the only son of Israel that was born in the promised land. He was born in the land of Canaan. The first king in Israel, King Saul, was a Benjamite, according to 1 Samuel 9. And it may have well been that Paul's parents named him Saul after this most famous member of the tribe. And then in 1 Kings 12:21. we learn that when the kingdom of Israel was divided, that it was part of the tribe of Benjamin alone that remained loyal to the house of David. And so together with the tribe of Judah, Benjamin became one of the only two tribes that made up the southern kingdom of Israel, which maintained the, the purity of ceremonial worship by not setting up altars outside of Jerusalem like those in the northern kingdom did. And because of that were carried off into exile into Assyria in 722 B.C. And according to Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, it was only these two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that persevered through the exile. And then that great man Mordecai, whom God used mightily to preserve the Jewish people from slaughter during the Persian Empire, that great deliverer also was a Benjamite. And on top of it all, it was within the borders of the land that God had allotted to the tribe of Benjamin that the holy city of Jerusalem itself fell. And so, not only was Paul an eighth-dayer, not only of the stock of Israel, but he was also descended from the most illustrious and highly respected tribe of Benjamin. If you want to talk social status in Israel, it doesn't get any better than Paul's associations. But Paul tells us in this passage that social status has absolutely no value with respect to salvation. Not ritual, not birth, and not social status. And again, I don't expect many of you are tempted to believe any such nonsense that a higher socioeconomic status contributes anything to your salvation, or a lower one for that matter. But social status in the church doesn't exclusively concern whether you're upper middle class or lower middle class. We have a social status in the church, don't we? Say, well, my father was a pastor. My son is a seminary professor. My daughter followed her husband onto the mission field. You yourself might have been trained in Bible college. You might have earned a degree in MDiv from seminary, even from the Master Seminary. And again, all of those those things can be wonderfully glorious privileges that you can thank God for, but not a one of them impresses God as a ground for salvation. Not one of them contributes to the basis of your righteousness by which you stand before God. A fourth advantage, still in verse 5. Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now here he's not just repeating that he's an Israelite. He's not just using the same synonym, just a synonym for somebody who's Jewish. A Hebrew referred to a Jewish person in the dispersion who didn't adopt the language and customs of the Greco-Roman world. And there's a passage that illustrates that helpfully for us in Acts chapter 6. Turn there with me. Sixth chapter of the book of Acts. Luke tells us about a conflict that arose in the early days of the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Luke says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily service of food. So you see what was happening. There were two groups uh, or classes of Jewish people. In the church at Jerusalem. There were the the Hellenists. These were the people that would have been the the Jews who spoke Greek and who lived by Greco-Roman customs. And it was they who were getting overlooked because pride of place was being given to the Hebrews, the Hebrew widows. And the Hebrews, you got the same word in our text in Philippians, the, the Hebrew Jews probably also knew Greek, but they also knew and spoke Aramaic. And it's very likely that in their attendance of the synagogues, they wouldn't have attended a Greek-speaking service, but a Hebrew-speaking service. They attended service in the language of the law. The Hebrews, they were fastidious to protect their social and cultural customs from the corrupting influences of Hellenistic culture. Their politics, their social interactions, their educational curricula Their religious rituals and many other things would have been distinct from that of the surrounding culture, from the the world around them. And so Paul says, not only have I maintained the purest form of the rite of circumcision, not only do I have pure Israelite blood running through my veins, not only do I descend from the socially illustrious tribe of Benjamin, but my parents have raised me so as to be kept from the corrupting influences of Gentile culture. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. But, as he said in verse 3, the true people of God put no confidence in the flesh. And that can only mean one thing, my friends, according to this passage, this phrase in this verse, is that that salvation has absolutely nothing to do with observing religious traditions. Earlier this week I was speaking with my youngest brother who is a (laughs) relatively new believer and he was speaking about the gospel of Christ to one of his friends that he had gone to high school with. And uh, this this particular friend belongs to the Punjabi religion of Sikhism. She's a Sikh. And he was having a difficult time in discussing this with her. He's a new believer after all. And so he texted me uh, some questions about how to answer certain objections. And so I had a profitable conversation with him. But one of the things that his friend said was really striking to me. I don't think I'll forget it, actually. She said... I believe you should stay in the religion and culture that God brought you in this world with. There was a reason for that. We we shouldn't change it and neither should we try to change that for anyone else. Sikhism is my place. That's where I belong. And everyone has a place where they belong. I hate people who convert. Now there is someone who believes in the merit of remaining loyal to religious tradition. And I hear this kind of thing all the time. I mean, I have relatives, and I'm sure that you have relatives, who say things like, listen, my parents were Catholic, I was born a Catholic, I was baptized in the Catholic Church, I can't be anything other than Catholic. Or I'm a Lutheran because my parents are Lutherans and their parents before them are Lutherans. Or even I'm a Baptist because I come from a long line of Baptists and I couldn't disown the heritage of my forebears like that. But friends, can you see that this text right here puts the lie to that kind of devilish reasoning? Paul says, listen, my parents and I were so fastidiously devoted to maintaining the purity of our religious traditions against all kinds of external pressures. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, but when Christ invaded my life on the road to Damascus and gave me eyes to see, I found that it was all worth nothing. All my cultural conservatism and all my preservation of my traditions couldn't contribute one iota to the righteousness that God requires of me. And the same is true for us, my friends. Loyalty to religious traditions for their own sake has nothing to do with true salvation. Well, those first four advantages had to do with privileges that the Apostle Paul inherited. But just as inherited privileges can't earn our acceptance before God, neither can our own personal achievements contribute to our righteousness. And Paul includes these last three to teach us that. So the fifth advantage comes at the end of verse 5. Paul says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now you're all familiar with the Pharisees because of our Lord's ministry and dealings with them during the time of His earthly sojourn and even though the pharisees of jesus day had so perverted the word of god so as to nullify it by their own traditions phariseeism began as a sect of judaism that was wholly devoted to the pure teaching of the scriptures in fact the word pharisee means separated one." Was Speaking of the fact that the Jews in the intertestamental period had separated from the other Jews who had adulterated their religion by mingling it with components of Greek culture. The Herodians, for example, had sold themselves into politics. That's what Judaism was for them. We need to kind of bring in the messianic kingdom through political power. And the Sadducees were the religious liberals who had only accepted part of Scripture and denied its supernatural aspects like the existence of angels and the resurrection of the body. But the Pharisees rejected these excesses and they clung to the purity of the Word of God. They believed in all the Scriptures. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. Pastor John writes, To be a Pharisee was to be a member of an elite influential, and a highly respected group of men who fastidiously lived to know, interpret, guard, and obey the law. Of course, I'm not suggesting that there was no problems with that. Their problem was that they were so, by the time of Jesus certainly, they were so religiously devoted that they added to Scripture's commandments. And they regarded their own interpretive traditions contained in their oral law as equally binding to Scripture. You can see that in Mark chapter 7, Matthew 15, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You you won't even give your parents any money because you say it's Corbin, it's devoted to God, and you nullify the word of God with your traditions. So, Paul in Acts 26 5 says that he lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, the strictest sect. And no matter how far the Judaizers might have wanted to make the Philippians go in their observance of the Mosaic law, they would have never been able to attain to the level that Paul had achieved in his Pharisaic devotion, both to the law of Scripture and to the law of the Pharisaic interpretation of Scripture. I mean, it was unbelievably burdensome and Paul did it all. But even at that level that Paul achieved, he said that that religious devotion contributes nothing to salvation. That religious devotion is absolutely worthless. And we can't be deceived, friends, into thinking that if we attend church and that if we attend fellowship group and if we attend Bible study and if we meet with people for coffee to talk about spiritual things and we read our Bibles and we pray and we read Christian books and we even teach Scripture to others, All of those acts of religious devotion are glorious fruits. They're glorious evidences of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But not one of those things on its own, nor the whole of them in aggregate, can function as the ground of your righteousness. You can be as religious as you can possibly be. You can wear the funny hats. You can wear the big robes. You can wear the humongous pendants around your neck. You can take the vows of poverty. You could live in seclusion. You can seek to even punish yourself physically, as some people do, the ascetics, to try to atone for sin. But no matter what you do, you won't be able to earn the kind of righteousness that admits you into the presence of God because salvation does not depend at all. Upon religious devotion, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Well, number six then, the beginning of verse six, Paul says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, in order to understand the significance of that statement, you've got to understand the importance and the nobility attached to zeal in the Jewish culture, one commentator writes that zeal was the code word in Paul's time for a fervent commitment to defending the purity of Israel's religious practice and of her communal institutions, even at the cost of life itself. And the prototype of that kind of zeal in Israel—anybody know who it might have been? It was Phineas? Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the priest. Numbers 25 tells us that in the midst of Israel's idolatrous worship of Baal, one of the Israelite men brought a Midianite woman and presented the woman to, her relatives, to his relatives rather, uh, for marriage. And this was a, a high-handed neglect of the command of God not to intermarry with the nations who would entice them to foreign gods. And that was already going on. And God had already visited Israel with a plague. But When Phineas saw this, it was the last straw. He saw the Midianite woman being introduced to the family of this man, and he grabbed a spear and he pierced both the man and the Midianite woman through and killed them. In Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31, says that Phineas' zeal was reckoned to him for righteousness. That's quite a statement. In the same way that Phineas killed those who sought to pollute Judaism and the law of God, Paul viewed those early followers of Jesus Christ as those who were corrupting the purity of the word of God. And so Paul persecuted Christians, even unto death, perhaps supposing that like Phineas, his zeal would be reckoned to him as righteousness. It was to such a degree that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could describe Paul as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Persecuting Christians was as natural and reflexive as breathing for the Apostle Paul. But the Judaizers, they had known none of that kind of zeal. Sure, they may have even been Pharisees who were so zealous as to travel across land and sea and make a convert, make a proselyte. See, they may have proselytized, but Paul persecuted. Paul himself, in Galatians 1:14, described his lifestyle of persecution as being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. It's this link between zeal and persecution. Well, what's Paul teaching us here? He's teaching us that salvation doesn't come as a result of sincerity or earnest devotion. That's such a common statement nowadays, isn't it? Just about as common as it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you have faith. Now it's it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, as long as you really believe it. The other day, Pope Francis wrote a letter to an, an Italian newspaper explaining that, that atheists can be admitted into heaven As long as they obeyed the dictates of their own consciences. You see, sin, he says, is going against conscience. And so as long as you obey the dictates of your conscience, you are all right. My friends, Paul obeyed the dictates of his conscience. And he killed people for his religion. He murdered Christians. And his conscience said it was an honorable thing to do. People drive planes into buildings because their conscience is okay with it. Because they're devoting themselves to their religion. It doesn't get any more sincere than that. And so if sincerity could garner favor with God, surely Paul would have been the one man to earn that favor. But he didn't. He said it was worthless. Sincerity, worthless. Why? Because you can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. Paul says that this very same thing in the opening verses of, of Romans chapter 10. It's a precious passage Romans chapter 10 verses 1 to 4 he says I testify about them meaning the Jews I testify about these people that they have a zeal for God I'll give them that but it's a zeal he says not in accordance with knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God you see All the zeal for God in the world means absolutely nothing when that zeal is employed as a means of establishing your own righteousness because you don't know enough about God's righteousness. You don't understand the absolute standard of perfection to which you are called. You think God is less righteous than He is and you think that you are more holy than you are. You can have all the zeal in the world, but not if you're trying to establish your own righteousness with it. And so, friends, by all outward reports, you may be a zealous Christian, quote-unquote. Your Bible may be highlighted in five different colors with the pages falling out. You may pray for multiple hours a day. You may fast weekly. You may be the one who spends all your free time evangelizing, handing out tracts and Bibles and sharing the gospel with people. You may be the one visiting the homeless shelters and the pregnancy centers and the soup kitchens. But the moment you begin relying upon your religious zeal to serve as the ground of your acceptance with God, your zeal becomes out of accord with knowledge. It becomes your paltry attempt at seeking to establish your own righteousness. You think you're more righteous than you are. You think God is less righteous than He is. And that will do nothing but send you straight to hell. Finally then, number seven, Paul says... As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now, understand that Paul here is not claiming to be sinless before his conversion. Otherwise, what need would he have for conversion, right? And not only this, but such a claim would contradict both the very heart of Jewish theology, which taught that we were all sinful, and the scriptures that Paul had sought so zealously to uphold, And it also would have contradicted Paul's own testimony in Romans chapter 7, where he says that the commandment, thou shalt not covet, produced in me coveting of every kind. And so Paul is not claiming sinlessness. What he's claiming is that he had so scrupulously adhered, even to the Pharisaic interpretation of the law, with all of its fine-tuned prescriptions for Sabbath observance, for dietary restrictions, and for ceremonial cleanness, that no one... On the outside, observing his conduct, could justly censure him for falling short of the standard that he required for others. As far as anyone can tell, from the perspective of outward observation, Paul was not one of those Pharisees that Jesus rebuked in chapter 23 of Matthew, who laid moral and ethical demands on the backs of people while he sat in the seat of Moses, but didn't live in in, in a way that was equal to what he was requiring of others, that didn't lift a finger himself. Paul says, as it concerned the kind of external righteousness that the Old Testament law and the Pharisaic tradition prescribed, no one could justly reproach him. Surely the great majority of the Judaizers wouldn't have dared to make such a claim of themselves. And so if anyone was going to have a ground for confidence in his own works or his own self-righteousness, it was Paul. And so you're able, if you take a step back and really see what he's doing here, you're able to behold the wisdom of his argument. We have these Judaizers who are coming and they're they're tempting these Philippians, these Gentiles who could never be eighth-dayers with respect to circumcision, who could never claim to be of the bloodlines of Israel, who could never belong to such an illustrious religious tribe and social standing as to be of the tribe of Benjamin. People who had no hope of ever achieving what Paul did with respect to the strictness of the Mosaic law and the kind of good works that contribute to one's own righteousness. And like the most tender of shepherds, Paul urges his beloved friends, dear Philippians, don't be deceived by this false gospel that they're peddling to you. Listen, if the Judaizer's argument has any merit at all, then I've got much more to commend to you in the way of fleshly attainments than they do. And if that's the case, why did I come preaching to you nothing but Christ and Him crucified? Why didn't I urge you to follow my fleshly example of confidence in the fleshly attainments regarding circumcision and keeping the law of Moses? Oh, dear friends, it's because I had been there. And in the awesome light of divine holiness, not one of those advantages proved to be any sure ground for confidence in the presence of God. All of them amounted to nothing but sinking sand. Indeed, he says in verse 7, but whatever things were gains to me, gains in the plural, in the original text, whatever things were gains to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And here Paul takes up the language of accounting and mathematics. He says he pictures himself as an accountant with his ledger book opened up in front of him and he says, in the past, as I reflected on my life and all my fleshly advantages, my adherences to ritual, my my noble birth, my high social standing, my traditionalism, my religious devotion, my earnest zeal, my legal self-righteousness. I listed all those advantages out in my ledger book. And you know what I saw next to each one of them? Pluses. Every one of these advantages were written in black ink in the credits column, in the assets column. And as I contemplated the day, That I would eventually stand in judgment before the holy God of Israel. Oh, my heart trusted and rested so securely in the fact that I had a ledger book full of pluses. Full of assets. Full of gains. But now, he says, whatever things that were gains to me. Whether it be those seven advantages or any other advantages that you can think of. Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. While he was still on his way to beat and imprison and murder more Christians, while he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, the Lord Jesus himself appeared from heaven in a blazing light, knocked Paul straight to the ground and struck him blind. And though he couldn't see with his physical eyes, the eyes of his heart were finally opened for the first time. And he could finally see the glory of Jesus whom he had been persecuting. And in that moment, in the light of that glory, for the very first time, he saw himself as he truly appeared before God in all the filth and all the uncleanness of his sin. He says, In the light of that glory of Jesus, with the eyes of his heart, he looked again upon his ledger book with the list of all his religious attainments and spiritual credits. And he says, All the pluses disappeared. And he didn't just find things marked down 50% or 75%. In fact, he says he didn't even find zeros there. In the light of the glory of Jesus, every fleshly advantage that he had written in the assets column had been moved to the liabilities column. As the glory of Christ in the light of His holiness shone on the pages of Paul's ledger book, all the black ink turned into red ink. All of his gains... He had counted as one huge, overwhelming, colossal loss. The word for loss there speaks of detriment, damage, forfeit. The only other place this particular word is used as a noun in the New Testament is in Acts 27. As Paul suffers shipwreck on his voyage to Rome, they'd been battling a volatile sea for several days. And Luke says in Acts chapter 27, verse 18, the next day, as we were being violently storm tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. Verse 38 tells us that the men sought to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. What had happened? The cargo on that ship set for Italy was at one time considered to be gain for the merchants who were selling it, for the, the ship owners and for the potentially hungry people on the other end. But when those men came to the realization that that cargo and that that food was standing between them and life, they didn't just count it as worthless. They counted those things as loss, as positively harmful to them, and they cast them into the sea. If we keep these on board, we are going to suffer loss ourselves. We are going to suffer injury I count them as loss, a detriment to our health. Throw them overboard. And friends, when Paul realized that everything in his life, everything that he had counted on to be gain stood between him and the life that was to be found in Jesus Christ and in him alone, Paul counted everything that he might have put his confidence in for righteousness, everything that he ever considered himself to be, not just as worthless, but as loss, and he chucked it overboard into the sea, happy to never see it again. See, friends, being born in a Christian home, being raised by Christian parents, being in the habit of going to church to gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day, reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with the saints, zeal for Christ and his word, all of your obedience to the scriptures, all of those things are wonderful evidences of God's grace in your life. They're not to be despised in and of themselves, as if good works didn't mean anything in the Christian life. But all those things are evidences. The moment that you begin to regard them not as evidences, but as the ground of salvation, they have become not just worthless, they have become positively harmful to your soul. Why? Because they damn you straight to hell under the deception that they're sending you to heaven. You trust in those things to get to heaven. Confident. I've got my rituals. I've got my traditions. I've got my zeal. I've got my righteousness. And it's holding to those very things that you think will save you that will damn you. They're not just worthless. They're loss. Paul says, Christ struck me blind on that Damascus road, but he opened the eyes of my heart. And in the light of his glory, I could finally see, and I counted all my self-righteousness as loss. Dear friends, have you seen him? Not like Paul on the Damascus road, but with the eyes of your heart through the regeneration of the Spirit. Have you seen him? Has the beautiful, ravishing sight of Christ's glory taken your heart captive? Has the loveliness of his righteousness caused you to be Looking at your own righteousness and to count it but rubbish, but garbage. There's nothing but refuse. Has there been this this radical disruption of the very center of your life, the very core of your being? Have you so totally and thoroughly renounced yourself and all that you are and all that you were, every inherited privilege you may have enjoyed and every achieved accomplishment that you may have earned in the sight of men such that you can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Everything that I am, my hobbies, my interests, my identity, my achievements, my job, my character traits, my personality, everything I am has been nailed to the cross. And I no longer live. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He is all my righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not trust my sweetest frame. When I'm in the best frame and having the best devotional times of my life, no, I don't trust that. I wholly lean on Jesus' name, wholly on Christ and Christ alone, the, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Dressed, right? Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. You sing that. You sang that today. Do you believe that? From the depths of your heart, do you believe that? Is that the cry of your soul? That's what Christianity is. That is true, genuine, saving faith. That is what we mean when we speak of believing in Jesus not just a confession you make with your lips, not just a mental assent to certain facts of history, but abandoning all trust and reliance upon yourself for righteousness, even in part and wholly leaning, entirely depending upon an alien external righteousness to take you to heaven. The perfect righteousness of Christ, credited to your account through faith alone. Friends, pray with me. Oh, Father, that is our cry for ourselves. We trust in nothing of ourselves. We look to nothing of our special talents, nothing of our gifts, nothing of our inherited capabilities, absolutely nothing about me that commends me to you. We trust wholly, entirely on Jesus' name. We trust that the righteousness that you have required has been provided outside of us apart from us and even apart from the law and we trust in that man's righteousness we trust in the perfect righteousness of christ to to admit us into your presence and nothing else how could we we know our frame we know that we are but dust we know that we fall short of your glory we know that we've fallen short of your standard of perfection even as we've sat here this morning we despair of any righteousness of our own we put no confidence in the flesh we Lean wholly, rely entirely, stand firmly only on, on Jesus. And Father, if it's not so for any here today or even within the sound of my voice, Lord, would you grant them the miracle of, of regeneration, of faith and repentance? Open their eyes, come to them through your Holy Spirit, and, and strike them blind to sin and seeing glory for the first time. Show them how ugly all their sin is and show them how glorious and lovely your son is. Cause them to forsake their dependence upon that sin and their love of that sin and their pursuit of that sin. Cause them to love and pursue and depend upon Christ. I ask that you would save those whom you've called this morning. There'd be someone who you would be pleased to rescue out of darkness and bring into your marvelous light. All of it is loss. All of it is loss. Everything I am, everything I once was, all hopes of boasting, all of it, loss, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, it's in His name we pray. Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.